You are listening to a Raw Collective podcast. This episode of Well and Good is brought to you by Element. Element is an electrolyte drink mix that, I mean, I'm going to say it's the best one in the world. I, I haven't tried them all. I haven't tried all the electrolytes, but I've tried a lot. And I like this one the best. I like, I mean, I like the taste. There's so many different delicious flavors like chili mango, which tastes like a chili margarita, minus the margarita. There's a chocolate flavor, which, you know, it goes against what you'd normally expect in, a, in an electrolyte drink mix flavor, but it works and it tastes great. Or my go-to, which is just like the citrus flavor. Anyway, they're all scientifically developed and backed and they have the optimal ratio of the three main electrolytes or minerals that your body needs, which are sodium, potassium, and magnesium. And these help your body to function optimally you know, things like muscle function, you know, prevents things like fatigue. Sometimes if we're, if we're tired or we're feeling lethargic, bit of brain fog, it can just be because we have an imbalance in our electrolytes in our body. And so that's why I take uh, Element every single day. Sometimes I take some in the morning. I find it helps me to uh, just start my day on the right foot. But also after I've been exercising or sweating or in the sauna, I will then have uh, some electrolytes as well. But it's not just for people who are sweating a lot. Um, I think everyone actually could do with some electrolyte replacement in their bodies. We find ourselves just like, you know, drinking lots of water and thinking that we're hydrating. But the reality is that we actually do need to replace a lot of these electrolytes as we do lose a lot of them throughout the day. Element was developed by Rob Wolf. Rob Wolf is a previous guest on our podcast. If you're interested to learn a little bit more, you can go back and listen to that. In the meantime, the great people at Element have given all of our listeners, that's you, that's you listening right now, a free gift with purchase. So if you are interested in getting some Element for yourself and getting a little free gift, then you can head to the show notes. And in the show notes, there is a link that you can follow and that'll take you to the page where you can take up your free gift. There you go. Now. Onto the podcast. G'day. Uh, welcome to another show. Today, I sit down and have a chat with Dr. Michael Mosley. This was an amazing conversation. This guy is an absolute legend. If you're not familiar with him, he's from the UK and he's produced and started many health-related documentaries, very science-based research around health and longevity in many different aspects. And we touch on a bunch of this stuff today. We talk about fasting, nutrition, 5-2 diet that he invented, what that is and different protocols, different protocols for exercise with regards to longevity. We talk about gut microbiome. We talk about sleep with a lot of cool stuff on sleep in this chat there are so many things in here it's hard to even summarize them in this intro so let's just have a listen because i think you're going to get a lot out of this all right michael well um great to meet you and thanks so much for jumping on the podcast pleasure Hey, so for those people listening who are unfamiliar with you and your work, could you please give us just a brief background about where you've come from? I understand, you know, you, you started off as a medical doctor and you've then progressed into the BBC and your expertise is broad across so many aspects of health. Could you just explain where you've come from and where you are now? Sure. So um, I actually originally uh, did a degree in politics, philosophy and economics at Oxford. And then I became a banker and then I became a doctor and then I trained in psychiatry, and then I um, went into telly. And uh, I was behind the camera for a while, and then went in front of the camera as a presenter. And the thing that really kind of changed my life was 11 years ago, uh, when I discovered I had type 2 diabetes. And rather than go on medication, I made a documentary for the BBC Science Department called uh, Eat Fast, Live Longer, which uh, introduced me, and frankly, a lot of other people, to the idea of intermittent fasting. And in the course of that, I invented a new diet called the 5-2 diet. On that, I lost about 9 or 10 kilos and reversed my diabetes. And that kind of got me really interested in health, in exercise, in sleep, in all sorts of things. And so that's a potted history of how I got to where I am now. I watched that documentary. There was one aspect of it where you either you fasted for three days or the, the guy you were with was fasting for three days. And I remember thinking, God, that's, that's crazy. <laughs> and I think you really struggled with it too. I did. That was, um, I was fasting for, I actually did four days did you? on about 20 calories a day. 
I was with the film crew and they were eating, you know, breakfast, lunch and uh, evening meal, um, three-course meals, drinking wine and beer, and I was just sort of slowly sipping a glass of water. So it was quite tough. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> it was kind of interesting. I have not been tempted to do that one again. So uh, I was exploring different types of fasting at the time, and that's um, how I settled in the end on what I call the 5-2 diet, where you calories a couple of days a week down to about 800 calories, and that became doable. So I explored a lot of um, crazy different versions of uh, fasting, and uh, a four- or five-day fast was fairly hardcore. Mm. Would you say, I mean, I like to ask this question of all my guests, like what is the weirdest or most interesting thing you've ever done for your health? Would that be it for you or is there something other? No, that was definitely the best thing. But the weirdest thing probably was when I infected myself with a tapeworm. And that was part of a series. I was kind of going through a phase at the time of doing um, crazy self-experiments. And this one, I was doing a series (laughs) on parasites. And so the producer said, look, uh, what sort of parasites are you prepared to get infected with? So I had a go at leeches. I had a go at head lice. My wife, Claire, vetoed uh, pubic lice. She wasn't crazy about that one. Um, and uh, and <laughs> Understandably. Uh, we agreed. Understandably, exactly. So we agreed I'd have a go um, getting myself infected with tapeworms. I was actually checking out a theory that um, if you get infected with tapeworm, this can reduce allergies. I suffer from hay fever, so I thought it'd be interesting to see. So we went off to Kenya. We got hold of an infected cow, got a couple of, uh, in fact, three cysts, tapeworm cysts, and I swallowed them because we thought, you know, uh, that would maximise the chance at least one of them would grow. And the deal I had with my wife is that we would get rid of them before they got to full length. Because when they get to full maturity, the way they spread is they're growing in your gut, segments break off, they come out of your bottom, and then they crawl around looking for another person to infect. And if that happened no in the middle way. of the night, my wife would not... Absolutely. And I did it with a professor at Liverpool University. He did not tell his wife that he was doing this. And the first thing she knew about it is when she came across one of these segments crawling across the pillow. So uh, oh that's a sort of immediate, immediate <laughs> divorce. But anyway, uh, long story short, about eight weeks in, I had no idea if I was infected or not. But the agreement was that I would swallow a pill camera, a little camera, which basically Bluetooth to your phone or your laptop and you swallow it and then you can kind of see its journey down. And I swallowed it and then it kind of got stuck. So I uh, asked a friend of mine who's a gastroenterologist what I should do. And he said, um, pop along to the local Indian and order something really, you know, spicy. So I went off and ordered a vindaloo. And about halfway through the meal, I'm looking at my uh, phone and suddenly I can see the camera is on the move and it just goes round the bend and woo, there's a tapeworm there. So uh, in the film, you can see me jumping up and down with excitement because (laughs) it would have been a real pain if I'd done all that and nothing there. So yeah, it turned out in the end, if you actually look on YouTube and go Michael Mosley tapeworm, I think you can probably see them because it turned out there were three of them, each of them eight metres long in my gut. So yeah, that would be, it's a long way of saying that's Whoa, probably one of the craziest. eight metres long. Yeah, they were, they were seriously long. And they were obviously getting ready oh to shed. God. So, <laughs> Oh my God, that sounds horrible. Yeah. We'll definitely put the link to that in the show notes. I'm sure people will want to see your eight metre long tapeworms inside <laughs> you. <laughs> so um, was there any benefit to it? Did it affect your hay fever? Yeah, it did. I mean, it certainly had an effect on my hay fever. And we tested my reaction to, we went into a lab and tested my immune response to grass pollen, which is what I'm allergic to. And that was indeed diminished because what the parasite is doing is trying to downregulate your immune system to protect itself. There are other things. There's a guy I know at uh, Nottingham University in the UK who is deliberately infecting himself with hookworm as a way of looking at different parasites, including multiple sclerosis. So there's a lot of interest in uh, how parasites manipulate our immune system and um, help with autoimmune disease. So so lots of interesting stuff emerges from that. But um, mainly, I think that was uh, just kind of a slightly bizarre experiment. But it was good fun. It was interesting. (laughs) Yeah, good fun for you. Scary for your wife. So, 
I want to understand a bit more about the five two diet because that seems to be your. I know you have um, some other diets that you've sort of come up with since, but the five two diet seems to be the one that is most popular and most talked about. Can you just explain a little bit more about exactly what it is? I'd love for someone who who wants to give it a go to actually just be able to do it after hearing you speak. My mother in law has actually done it and and still does it and um, has lost a bit of weight and and loves it. Okay. So in a way, it's quite a simple idea that rather than, say, cutting your calories seven days a week, uh, you just cut them two days a week. Some people find that more manageable. So what I was recommending is that people cut down to about 800 calories. When I wrote the original book, uh, which was called The Fast Diet and uh, was published in 2013, I was suggesting people, they eat about 800 calories two days a week and five days a week, they try and eat a healthy diet, what I'd call a Mediterranean style diet. The idea is that firstly, for some people, it is much easier to do that sort of thing than to try and stick to a diet seven days a week. But also there are added benefits when it comes to your health from doing what I would call intermittent fasting. Essentially, there's an evolutionary argument behind it, which broadly goes that our ancient ancestors uh, did not eat, you know, three meals a day. They had periods of feast and famine, and that's what you're tapping into. And part of that is also linked to the diet, which is better known now, which is the keto diet. You go into ketosis. So the idea is you try and do two days back to back, And um, after that, there was a study done in um, Manchester in the UK, about 120 women. And they found that uh, when they asked them to either do the 5-2 diet or a standard diet, the women doing the 5-2 diet lost twice as much fat. And they also saw improvements in breast cancer biomarkers and things like that. And um, there is some research which also suggests it's kind of good for your brain because one of the uh, researchers in it, uh, who's a leading neuroscientist, said to me, the time you need to be smart is not when you have food to hand. It's basically when you don't. And so our ancestors basically, if you're lying in a cave and you haven't got food, then you've got to be able to plan, you've got to go out, you've got to hunt. And so what actually happens is that when you do intermittent fasting, this leads to the production in the brain of a substance called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like fertilizer for the brain. So fasting seems to make you smart. And certainly there are different versions on it, but one of the reasons it took off in such a spectacular way in places like Silicon Valley is because obviously they all want to be smart and uh, get the edge. And there is some quite interesting research um, looking at the impact on the brain. But as I said, it's very simplest. It's essentially two days a week, cat calories to 800. Try to do a broadly low-carb diet on those days. I have a thing called the 50-50 rule. Uh, Try to eat at least 50 grams of protein and less than 50 grams of carbs. And uh, the books I've written with my wife, lots of recipes in there showing you how to do it. I've actually since, and this is based on more recent research, I suggest to people that if it's suitable, uh, then you may want to go harder to begin with, um, that you might actually want to try doing 800 calories every day uh, for up to 12 weeks. And that's based on quite a few big clinical trials. And if you go to thefast800.com, you can find out if you're suitable and find out how to do it. So in my latest iteration, because, you know, stuff moves, I suggest you start with the rapid, if it's suitable, then you move to the 5-2, and then you kind of go to what I call the way of life, which is broadly eating a healthy Mediterranean-style diet. Because without a doubt, that's kind of the healthiest diet on the planet. Yeah, brilliant. Do you just have any examples of what 800 calories might look like for someone in terms of actual foods? Sure, absolutely. So for breakfast, for example, you might have some scrambled eggs or an omelette. For lunch, you might have a bit of fish with some veg. And again, in the evening, maybe a bit of meat, a bit of veg, a bit of tofu. You can actually get a decent amount of food for eight to 900 calories, surprising amount of food if you choose the right foods. And you want to make sure you're eating plenty of veg because veg is, you know, has very low calorie, lots of fiber, which will keep you full. But you also need to be eating plenty of protein because if you don't eat enough protein, protein is the only macronutrient you do not store. So you store carbs, you store fat, but you don't store protein. So within about 24 hours, if you're not getting enough, then your body will kind of cannibalize your muscles and things like that. So one of the big mistakes people make in rapid weight loss diets is either eating poor quality protein or not enough. So you'd need to be eating at least 50 grams a day. 
And as I said, if you can eat uh, something with lots of fiber in, uh, nutrient-rich, olive oil, it's, you know, it's tasty. There are lots of terrific recipes in the books. So uh, people are amazed how quickly they stop feeling hungry and um, typically report feeling kind of sharper on the ball. And it seems to help, as I said, with autoimmune diseases. So people who have asthma, eczema have all reported to me some benefit from uh, going on this sort of a diet. I can definitely relate to that. I've I've experimented with a bunch of different fasting protocols in the past, and one that I did, I, I was getting a bit of, uh, I think, psoriasis on my face, and I did a three-day fast, and after that three-day fast, it cleared up completely. And I tend to, if ever it flares up again, I tend to implement a bit of fasting, usually some intermittent fasting. You just touched on protein, and you, you mentioned some high-quality protein. I would love to know your thoughts on, like, what might be some good sources of protein, maybe, or like, are some better than others? Absolutely. I mean, things like meat and fish are complete proteins, as you probably know. Proteins made up of amino acids, there are 20 amino acids. Uh, Vegetables and legumes are good, but they are incomplete on the whole. They don't have all the right amino acids. So you have to kind of do a mix-up. And interestingly, a lot of cuisines around the world have just sort of naturally realized that if you put combinations together, then that way you get a complete protein. So for example, beans on toast, which is a great favorite in the UK, the beans and the toast provide between them a complete protein package. And in Mexico, again, it's there are foods, the beans, and you put them together with the tortillas and you get complete proteins. But the simplest way of ensuring you get adequate protein is meat and it's fish. If you're a vegetarian, you can, it's legumes, is making sure you get beans, lentils, black beans, things like that. And if you're vegan, again, it's those things, but you probably need to be eating tofu or tempa or something like that, because those are to get enough protein in your diet, because it's quite difficult otherwise, as a vegetarian or vegan, particularly if you're calorie restricting, uh, to get enough protein in your diet. Mm. And one, I think you mentioned before, was about the effect on your cognitive function. Say you want to be on the ball, you want to be smart for a meeting or you've got a presentation or whatever it might be. Is there some sort of protocol that like you do in yourself or you could recommend that would be helpful? Like if someone wanted to maybe fast leading up to this so that their mind is sparking, they're, they're quick, how long do they need to be kind of fasting for? I think they probably need to have done it a few times because it can get quite distracting if you haven't, as you probably know. In a way, it kind of gets easier once you've done it a few times. The technical term is flipping the metabolic switch, that what happens when you've been without food for a while is your body goes from burning sugar primarily to burning ketones, and that's kind of the basis of the keto diet. It is quite disturbing the first time you do it. It can make you feel pretty tired, pretty lethargic, and not at all on the ball. But um, once you've done it a few times, then it gets easier. And uh, many people kind of swear by the fact it seems to make them sharper and things like that. Though, to be honest, if I really want to be um, on the ball, then I drink caffeine. (laughs) I try to get a good night's sleep. And I also probably practice breathing exercises beforehand because um, I'm a huge fan. Again, this is a kind of ancient, in a way, fasting has been around for uh, you know thousands of years and the great philosophers like Plato swore by it they said it was a great way to think more clearly the Buddha for example told his followers a different form of fasting this one's time-restricted eating where you try and extend your overnight fast so this has become very fashionable 16 8 or 14 10 but the Buddha you know 3,000 years ago told his followers that if he stopped eating by lunchtime and then not eat again till the next morning which in his case would have been about 5 a.m uh, then this leads to mental clarity but again uh, a lot of great religions have advocated a form of breathing exercise so the yogics for example have been doing it for a long time yoga and you one one's eye practice is called 424 you breathe in through your nose to count to four hold it for two and then breathe out through your mouth to count to four 
If you do that a few times, really calming. So before an important meeting or you're giving a speech or you're doing anything or maybe it's the middle of the night and you've got these thoughts racing through your head, just slowing your breathing, doing this form of breathing is incredibly effective. I don't know if in New Zealand you get this podcast series I do called Just One Thing. That's been very popular in the UK, but um, the most popular episode we did was about breathing exercises. And um, I'm coming to New Zealand to do a tour, but as part of that, I'm going to be talking about some of these things. Really, really simple techniques which can, you know, really transform your life. And for me, that's been one of the big things. I'm prone to catastrophic thinking. I wake up often at 3 a.m., but I found that just breathing deeply, in that way. It just calms everything down, your heart slows down, and uh, it's amazingly effective. So I love it. I also do practice various forms of breath work, and I find them hugely beneficial. I find it really cool that you can alter your, well, I guess your mental state through something so natural. Absolutely. Like you said before, it's like all of these these things, fasting, breath work, I mean, so many different aspects of health are like, they've been practiced for centuries. And now it's like science is finally explaining or proving them to be hugely beneficial. It's so great. Absolutely. An aha moment. And then they kind of capture it, if you like. And I love the fact that they can now dig into it and explain it. And we know, for example, that when you're doing that breathing and you're slowing down, then what it does is it activates something called the parasympathetic nervous system. This slows your heart. And it's really that which is inducing the calm. And we know, for example, also that uh, when your heart rate slows down, that's a trigger for sleep. And that, again, is why it really helps with sleep. I love the explanations. For some people, it's just enough to know it works, but I like to know why it works. And the same is true of intermittent fasting. I started off thinking it was absolute nonsense, but when I looked into the science, I thought, wow, this is really, really interesting. And that's what I want to share uh, with other people because I have learned so much over the last 11 years. I have spoken to zillions of fantastic scientists and it's utterly transformed my life. I get such a buzz out of it. (laughs) Yeah, I bet you do. And you will, I mean, this podcast will most likely come out before your talks here in New Zealand and Australia, which are middle of March. And we'll put links to all this in the show notes as well, if anyone wants to come along and and listen to you talk. Brilliant. What are some other things that you, through your exploration, through all this health science that you've really taken on board maybe in the last, say, five years that have impacted your health significantly? You know, you've got obviously 10... 15 years ago, you changed up and looked at fasting. You also, you know, do a bit of breath work to help with your sleep. Are there any other aspects that you are worth mentioning? Oh, absolutely. Loads and loads of things. I'm a poor sleeper. So I have um, made a lot of documentaries. And indeed, the reason, one of the reasons I'm going to be in Australia is I make a three part series on sleep. And we're going to be testing out uh, quite a radical idea, which is that the best way to cure insomnia is to deprive people of sleep. It's called sleep restriction therapy. And uh, it seems to be really, really effective. And one of the things I learned while making a previous series on sleep was the value of, you know, if you're awake at three in the morning, which many of us are, thinking thoughts, and uh, you do a bit of breathing, and often that helps and you drift off. If that's not working, then what you need to do is you need to get out of bed find a quiet spot, read a boring book, listen to some music, and just broadly wait until you feel sleepy. Because the secret of rediscovering sleep, particularly if you've lost the ability to fall asleep easily, is to associate bed with sleep and sex and nothing else. A lot of it's about relearning something that came to you incredibly naturally when you were a teenager or when you were in your 20s. You know, when I was young, I could sleep anywhere, any place, any time. I've slept in graveyards. I've slept in telephone kiosks. You know, I slept everywhere. But uh, when I hit my 40s, work, kids, you know, uh, my sleep went completely downhill. And when you get older, I'm now 65, sleep also becomes more elusive while being just as essential. So I've got a lot of uh, techniques and tips to share about sleep. I think that is one of the things that a lot of people struggle with. And uh, with that comes anxiety, depression and things like that. I'm hugely, hugely interested as well in the microbiome in gut bacteria. 
And that's something I've immersed myself in over the last um, decade or so. And how to improve your gut bacteria, sauerkraut, you name it, different ways, what your microbes are doing to you, how they're influencing your mood. So that's kind of one of the things I want to talk about as well and share some insights in. There are kind of four things you absolutely need to crack if you want to lead a healthy life. Uh, One of them is healthy weight. And by that, I really mean, you know, ideally your waist should be less than half your height. It's all about the fat around the tummy. That's kind of the clue to a healthy weight, because if you don't, you're not a healthy weight, there's a high risk you'll suffer from metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes, hypertension, you know, incredibly common as you get older. Sleeping well, reducing anxiety, and being active. Exercise. What are the best forms of exercise? How can you get the biggest bang for your bucks, if you like? Uh, What forms of exercise are really effective and which ones are ineffective? What works, you know? Again, I have spent so much time with exercise physiologists and uh, it's utterly changed how I exercise. As you can see, I'm mad keen about this stuff. Awesome. Well, so am I. Um, (laughs) This is is great. I want to touch on all of these things. Can we just go back and actually just have a little dive into sleep? I'd love to know your thoughts on exactly how much sleep we need. Is it the eight hours that we need? What are some of the best protocols? What are some tips that people can employ to get better sleep? Everything around that. So broadly speaking, eight hours seems to be the default. And frequently when people get older, they no longer get eight hours. It's not that they don't need it, they're just not getting it. But the best measure of whether you are getting enough sleep is do you feel sleepy during the day? And there is a classic test you can try, and that consists basically of going to bed in the afternoon, you set the alarm for 20 minutes time, and then you close your eyes. And the question is, do you fall asleep before the alarm wakes you up, before the alarm goes off? If you fall asleep within 15 to 20 minutes, then you are probably sleep deprived. You're probably not getting enough. Other classic signs are you come home and you fall asleep in front of the telly. You go to the cinema, you go to the theatre, you fall asleep. These are all things that my dad did. And these are all things that I find myself doing now. But that is the best measure. There are some people who can get by on three, maybe four hours sleep a night. They're called sleep mutants. Most people can't, but some people absolutely can, uh, whereas other people absolutely need eight or nine hours in order to function optimally. So, uh, as I said, the best measure is do you feel sleepy? And then beyond that, it's kind of are you an, a lark or an owl? Because the world seems to operate better if you're a lark. And you can convert yourself from a lark into My wife is a, a classic owl, whereas I'm a lark. I go to bed, I'm looking at my watch at about 10.30, whereas Claire is only just beginning to wake up and party. So um, she's kind of adapted, uh, but it's possible to change yourself. A lot of it is about routine. It's about setting a routine, but it's also about simple things like going for early morning walks, because what you need to do is change your internal clock. It's all about chronobiology. It's about resetting your internal clock. And uh, a walk in the the morning or even artificial light, there's a thing called a sad lamp. All of those can really help if you're struggling. But as I said, these are things I'm going to be exploring in the Australian sleep documentary, which I'm sure we'll be showing in New Zealand as well. It's going to be called the Australian Sleep Revolution. So uh, I'm hugely looking forward to it because I'm going to be a willing volunteer and uh, I'm going to be trying it all. So it'll be interesting to see what they come up. They've, they're keeping some stuff secret from me for a surprise. So we shall see. Oh, how exciting. I can't wait to watch that. I think, um, you know, a documentary of that nature for sleep and looking at all that stuff, I think will be hugely beneficial to so many people. I mean, it seems that the more we learn about health, the more we understand that sleep underpins everything. Absolutely. The things are interactive in the sense, because I talked about the four pillars. And the fact is, for example, if you are significantly overweight, then you're going to snore, you're going to have sleep apnea, and that means your sleep quality is going to be poorer. As a result of that, you're going to crave sugary junk food when you wake up, because we know that feeling. When we're sleep deprived, what we want is something sweet and tasty first thing in the morning. So you get caught in this sort of vicious cycle. If you're sleeping badly, it's going to make you stressed, it's going to make you unhappy. It means, again, you're going to seek out, you're going to crave foods which will temporarily make you feel better. So all these things interact with each other. And I think 
what I want to do is kind of get people onto this virtuous circle where, you know, they're all positively reinforcing each other rather than the vicious cycle that so many people are on. I've just been making a series for the BBC, which is taking me around the world, called How to Live to 101. And this is all about healthy aging. How do you optimise your body at different stages in life? And it is absolutely fascinating what's happening now in the world of science. I am amazingly privileged because I get a chance to go and do this stuff, uh, roam the planet, talk to people, try stuff. And yeah, it's been fantastic. That is so cool. Is that um, How to Live to be 101, is that out now or are you still making it? No, um, we've just finished it. It will be coming to Australia and New Zealand in about six months' time. In the tour, I'm going to be giving a, a kind of sneak preview of some of the stuff we've discovered because it is absolutely mind-boggling. The sort of stuff, again, it's very surprising, the things that kind of help to keep your body young. And, uh, you know, some of the things are obvious, but some of the things were really blew my mind when I came across them. Can you give us a sneak peek now, or are you going to save that stuff for your talks? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, because um, some things, for example, are things like calorie restriction. I was in Okinawa in Japan, calorie restriction, intermittent fasting. They have the highest proportion of people in their 80s, 90s, 100. And that seems to be very largely down to the fact that after the war, uh, they were kind of forced to calorie restrict for a long period of time. And so they are living extraordinarily long lives. And when you test them, which is really interesting, there's a new test, which I also took, which measures what's called your epigenetic change, age, basically measures your biological age as opposed to your chronological age. I was in California when we were doing the test, but uh, their biological age is at least 10 years younger than what it says on their passport. When I did the test, I was five years younger, which I was quite pleased by. And the guy who had invented the test, he was five years older. So he was rather crestfallen by that. So I'm 65, he's 55, but biologically we're both 60, which I thought was very amusing. It amused me anyway. I was secretly obviously hoping to be 20 years younger, but I'll, I'll, I'll go with 10 years. Oh, yeah, I find all that stuff very fascinating. I've also done uh, biological or metabolic age testing. I did two. So I did one as a baseline marker, and I was, I think, three years younger than I, my chronological age. Then I did a seven-day water fast. And after that seven-day water fast, I had aged <laughs> by three years. <laughs> I think it was so stressful on my body to do a seven-day water fast. It was, it was too stressful for me. That, um, Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, didn't, it wasn't good. I wouldn't be doing that again if I were you. I mean, I, as I said, having done my five-day one, I thought never again. It was interesting. I'm glad I did it, but I had no desire ever to repeat it. Neither. No, neither. No, that's, it's far too long. I actually just wanted to ask you quickly about the sleep thing, just going back to that. Mm. I've got young kids. Some days, you know, it's out of my control. I can't get eight hours sleep. Kids are waking me up at night. Yeah. They're waking me up in the morning. You get what you can, right? Are there any like hacks or things that you can do that will, you talk about like bang for buck, like is there any way you can kind of cheat the system and like get 30 minutes of this special type of sleep that might account for one hour of normal sleep or anything like that? Well, there is napping. I don't know if you're a fan of napping. Uh, afternoon naps can be very powerful. Ideally, you need to do them within about an hour of lunchtime and between about two and four. Most people would say 20 minutes to half an hour because if you go much longer than that, you're going to deep sleep. Different lengths will give you different benefits. So a 20 to 30 minute nap will give you just perk you up for the afternoon. If you go for a longer one, then that's good for memory consolidation and things like that, but it might interfere with your sleep later in the day. A lot of athletes learn to nap. I was um, filming with Olympic rowers and they all have a nap in the afternoon because it's kind of a way of recharging their bodies. So if you haven't tried napping, give it a go. Mm. Yeah, I do love a nap. If you can. When I, when I can, yeah. It's just hard. I mean, it, doesn't, it often doesn't fit in with many people's lifestyle. But, oh, you feel so – well, sometimes you feel good, and then sometimes you feel more tired when you wake Absolutely. up. I guess that's when you, you sleep for a little <laughs> bit too long. I want to ask you about exercise. You mentioned yep. that you've looked into this a lot, or physical activity, especially from a longevity point of view. What are some interesting findings that you've found out with regards to bang for buck? Like, how can we be most efficient with our time to get the most benefit? 
Sure. So there are really three types of exercise you need to be doing. One of them is aerobic exercise. That's running, walking, swimming, working your lungs and heart. And uh, the second type is strength exercises, resistance exercises, that's push-up squats and things like that. And the third is balance, which is one that most people ignore, but which is hugely important because the second commonest cause of accidental death worldwide is falling over. And there is some research which suggests that our sense of balance has got worse with time because we spend so much of the, our lives sitting on our bottoms. So uh, interestingly, there was a study done, um, published in the British Medical Journal about uh, 15 years ago, where they did a whole bunch of tests on people in their 50s, including their ability to balance on one leg with their eyes open and closed. And they came back 20 years later to see what happened to them. And the single best predictor of mortality, of whether they would still be alive, whether they had died of heart disease, cancer, or you name it, was how well they had done on that balance test uh, when they were in their 50s. I do a thing where I practice balancing on my leg when I am brushing my teeth. So two minutes, so I do a minute on each leg or 30 seconds on each leg, however long you can do. Uh, you probably find the first time you do it, yeah, not so great, but the thing is you improve. And when you close your eyes, it's shocking how quickly you fall over, particularly if you're over the age of 40. Before then, your sense of balance is pretty good, but after that, it deteriorates very fast. So balance is really important. Yoga, walking backwards, running backwards, standing one leg, they're all good ways to improve your balance. Uh, in terms of strength exercises, I do a kind of workout in the morning where I do a mixture of press-up squats and things like that. I do them with my wife, Claire, because if you do with someone else, you're more likely to do them. That's why people have personal trainers, because not they don't know how to do it. It's just somebody comes and makes you do it. I do them first thing because if you're going to establish a habit, then the main thing is to hook it to something you're already doing. So you have to get out of bed, therefore do it then. If you don't do it, then I never will do it. And when it comes to things like aerobic exercise, uh, I'm a big fan of HIT, high intensity, doing short bursts of really going for it, you know. So it could be when you're jogging, you go for short sprints up the hill. I bicycle, I go like the clappers, I go crazy for 20, 30 seconds. Exercise bike, same thing, or even walking, just really push the pace. And uh, most of the benefit of exercise comes from that, from really getting your heart up there, but only for short periods of time. And so I made, again, uh, a documentary called The Truth About Exercise, which was all about this. And again, it's one of the things I'm going to be talking about on the tour. There's some really, really interesting stuff about exercise and the impact the exercise has not just on your body, but on your brain as well. Okay, so say say we're doing that, um, the high-intensity interval type stuff. Like, what's an example protocol in terms of timing of that? For example, I often do Tabata training, which is 20 seconds. Mm, that's tough. Yeah, yeah, 20 seconds on, have a little break for 10 seconds, then 20 seconds on, break for 10 seconds, 10, 20 seconds on. And I do that sort of eight times, giving it maximal effort every time. That's the one I do as well. That's protocol I do on an exercise bike. The minimum amount seems to be two two lots of 20 seconds with a short break in between. And that is enough uh, to produce significant change. Uh, but as you say, if you want to, you can go harder, longer. I typically do maybe three or four sessions like that. And uh, I do it on an exercise bike, but I also, uh, I am, live at the top of a steep hill. So I just put in a sprint, go flat out 20 seconds, have a breather, flat out 20 seconds, breather, flat out 20 seconds. And that's probably my typical protocol. There are plenty of studies which show that even that amount is enough to really improve your aerobic fitness. And you mentioned the, the cognitive benefit or the mental benefit to it. Can you just touch on some of that interesting information? Yeah, sure. So again, this is a lot of it's to do with aerobic exercise, but also resistance exercises. So it is things like press-ups and squats. There is some fascinating research showing that the vertical movement that you do when a press-up or a squat enhances the blood flow to the brain. When it, that happens, that again leads to production of the substance I talked about earlier called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like fertilizer for the brain. It basically preserves 
strengthens existing brain cells and it helps you develop new brain cells. So both exercise and intermittent fasting, both of them seem to be beneficial for the brain by leading to the production of this substance called BDNF, which, as I said, seems to be the sort of the magic ingredient for brain growth and indeed has been linked to all sorts of other uh, beneficial things going on in the brain. And uh, yeah, press up and squats, great exercise for working your top half, your bottom half, but also there's something beneficial about the vertical movement, which seems to be important for the brain. Yeah, that's really interesting. This BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, seems like that's quite a key thing. Absolutely. And again, interestingly, you know, when you look at something like a keto diet, that also leads to the production of BDNF. Is that one of the main things that, that you actually do look at from a, say, like a longevity point of view when you're looking at all of these different health regimes or methods or protocols? Are you measuring this BDNF as a, you know, is that a key indicator? There's certainly one of them. When it comes to longevity, there's an awful lot going on. There are quite a few genes involved. The main thing is this thing called uh, the epigenetic clock. It's basically widely accepted now as the best measure of biological aging. And again, there was a study done a few years ago with uh, middle-aged men where they got them to do a combination of intermittent fasting, some of this high-intensity stuff, and they also got them to do breathing exercises, and they did this for eight weeks. And at the end of that time, they had reduced their biological age by just over two years. So uh, that was pretty impressive. That was one of the first really powerful indicators that these sort of things really can make a profound difference to your biological age and can indeed uh, reverse it. So that was pretty cool. Can you actually just touch on what that exact protocol was in terms of the breath work and the exercise? And So essentially it was intermittent fasting, doing a sort of 5-2 pattern of eating, the one I described earlier, with a perhaps a little bit of time-restricted eating, doing some high-intensity interval training about sort of 5 to 10 minutes a day of that. And the third one was doing the breathing exercises I described earlier, which was 4-2-4. In eight weeks was enough to uh, reverse their biological age by about two years. That's amazing. Indeed. And what's really interesting about these tests is now you can actually test things. So before you could measure biomarkers, but you didn't really know. And, you know, humans live for a long time, so it's very difficult to say whether something is actually having an impact or not. But this particular test seems to be incredibly reliable and it is true across all species. So is as good a way of measuring the age of an elephant or a shrew or a hippopotamus as it is of measuring a human's age and is a better predictor of uh, life expectancy than anything else we have. So I think that's very cool. And another thing I came across in the States was uh, research looking at uh, treating people with fresh young blood. So this is from fit young men, and they're using it on people with Parkinson's. But we know from the rat studies, if you give an aging rat uh, blood from a fresh young rat, it reverses the epigenetic clock, that they are smarter, they find their way around the maze better, uh, they look glossier. So that's kind of spooky and slightly weird, and it shows that Dracula was onto something. It sure does. And so obviously I don't think we're going to be doing a lot of that in future, but, uh, you know, I've told my kids, I've got sons who are very fit and healthy, so I've said I'm going to be calling on their blood sometime soon yeah. when my brain starts to go. But um, And they're doing trials now, as I said, in people with Parkinson's. And, and I mean, yeah, you, you said me you know, might not be, the future might not be for everyone with that sort of thing, but, I mean, that sort of path of science, you know, could potentially lead to synthetic versions of that that then can be used. Oh, 100%. That's exactly where they're going. They're looking for the proteins. They're looking for what is it in fresh young blood that's actually doing this. How is it um, restoring vitality and youth? And uh, that's obviously a lot <laughs> yeah. lovelier a route to go than, than um, you know, having a young man on tap. For some reason, men, I'm, it probably works just well with women, but they haven't tested it. Young man on tap, that, that could be misconstrued. Um, but with the... The epigenetic clock. So you you got yours done when you're in LA at some point. I'm sure there's going to be people listening that are like, I want to get my epigenetic clock measured. Do you know how people can do that? Are there some like online ways to do it or? 
Yeah, I, th- I believe you can do it online now. It's also known as the Hovath clock, spelled H-O-V-A-R-T-H. Uh, if you Google that, it's named after the guy who invented it. It's also known as, uh, I think, the clock test. You can probably, in New Zealand, certainly in the UK, uh, you can order it online. Uh, you have to give a blood sample and send it away and they test it and they come back and tell you what your epigenetic age is. So it may be good news, it may be bad news. But yeah, absolutely. These tests have come down in price enormously. So yeah, I can see you dying to give it a go. Yeah, yeah. I just want to touch on um, the microbiome. You know, my understanding of the microbiome is that it's hugely important for our health, um, from our our immunity to our skin health, everything is all relates to our microbiome. Some of the ways that you can improve your microbiome, eating fermented foods. What are some other things that we should be considering? Like, can you give us a rundown of like maybe things we need to be conscious of when it comes to our microbiome? Absolutely. So there are like 100 trillion microbes down there, a thousand different species. They respond very much to what you eat. So you can't change your genes, but you can change your microbiome. So absolutely fermented foods. I'm a big fan of um, sauerkraut and kimchi and things like that. And I make my own. And indeed, uh, when I'm uh, doing the tour, my wife, Claire, who's a doctor and who I met at medical school 42 years ago, uh, she is going to be doing demos showing you how to make some of this stuff. And there's a lot of really interesting research now showing that it is very effective eating uh, fermented foods is good for your waste, but also for your mental health in terms of depression, anxiety, and things like that, and also cravings. Some really interesting new research out of Germany showing the impact on reducing cravings. You want to be eating lots of fiber if you can. Most New Zealanders are going to be eating far less fiber than they should. 30 different plants seems to be sort of one of the rules. But there are things you want to try and avoid as well. Too many antibiotics. Antibiotics are, uh, you know, really bad for your microbiome, understandably, because they kill bacteria. And uh, you've got some good ones down there you don't want to wipe out. And also junk food, because junk food contains emulsifiers and other substances uh, which are toxic for the good bacteria down in your gut. So uh, that seems to be, again, a lot of emerging research showing that the sort of, you know, the big rise in mental illness, depression, anxiety, which has um, swept the globe over the last 20 years, is very closely allied to the fact that we've turned, we're consuming junk food in huge quantities, ultra-processed food, and that seems to be really, really bad for our microbiome. There's even a term for it called psychobiotics, and that basically encompasses the impact the the lifestyle you embrace has on your uh, microbiome and therefore on your brain, on your mood and everything like that. So that is, again, another terrific revolution which is going on in the moment, the realisation that an awful lot of mental illness can be tied to dysbiosis, to uh, a mixed-up microbiome, a microbiome that's been poisoned by junk food, ultra-processed food, and by too many antibiotics. So we swallow them by the handful, thinking, hey, you know, that's good, I'm getting rid of the bacteria, but turns out there are a lot of bacteria you don't want to get rid of. Those are some things you can do if you want to improve your microbiome. I feel that the microbiome is such an important field that the science is moving reasonably rapidly on. And because there are still so many unknowns with it and the testing is not quite there compared to many other forms of testing in our bodies, I think we're going to see some like huge leaps in understanding and application for different science for the health of our microbiome in the next like 10 years. I think it's going to be really interesting. Absolutely. I mean, it's jumped in, even the last 10 years, it's just leapt in. We know so much more. It seems to explain a lot of the reasons why certain diets are good for us. It's not just they're good for us, but they're good for our microbiome and therefore, you know, for our overall health. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of opened up a whole new avenue on our thinking. If someone, you know, from time to time, we do need to take antibiotics for various reasons. Is there some sort of protocol that you could recommend, or I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but like of rebuilding your gut microbiome after you've had antibiotics? Yeah. So, uh, you know, there are probiotics and prebiotics and the probiotics are essentially living bacteria. And that's kind of what you find in yogurt, sauerkraut, kimchi and things like that. It's much better to make your own because that way, you know, you're getting a decent dose of it because quite a lot of the stuff you buy in shops has been pasteurized, which means it's dead. It's been killed. 
And then there are the prebiotics, which are things like fiber. So if you can eat more garlic, onions, inulin, basically things which are fiber rich, then that is going to feed the good bacteria in your gut. So it's important to do a combination because you want to parachute in more of the kind of good guys, if you like, but you also want to feed them when they're down there. So uh, using a war analogy, essentially you're parachuting in, but you need to keep them supplied to fight off the bad guys. In your gut is a constant state of war between the factions, if you like, which are anti-inflammatory and the factions which are pro-inflammatory. And you want to give uh, the uh, anti-inflammatory ones a hand. So it's a matter really of just doing things like that. One final question for you. Um, If you had an ideal day from like a health protocol perspective, what would that ideal day look like? Okay, I'd get up at bed at the same time, which is what I do because that's regularity is really about um, how you get better night's sleep. So I get up at about seven, I and Claire roll our bed, we do our exercises, our press-ups, our squats and stuff like that. Sometimes I go and have a cold shower. Not always, but I found a cold shower picks me up. Uh, head off for an early morning walk because the light is going to help reset it. Come back, have a cup of tea. I try and defer the coffee because we know that it's better if you can not have coffee within an hour of waking. There's a lot of reasons for that. I will have some eggs and probably some sauerkraut for breakfast. I kind of then go off to work. I try to stand up, pace around every half hour or so because we know that's good. I have a sort of, you know, some fish and plenty of veggies for lunch. I might have a nap in the afternoon. I have probably also stood on one leg while I've been brushing my teeth. I might, uh, if I'm feeling particularly enthusiastic, Claire and I might go off and uh, do a bit of dancing because dancing is really, really good for your brain and uh, try to go to bed at a sort of uh, before 11 so that I'm getting a good night's sleep. So that's kind of a, a very short summary. And obviously having fun with friends is also a hugely important part because we haven't even touched on that, but uh, being sociable, nurturing your loved ones, is probably one of the most important things you can do if you want to lead a long and happy life. It's all about the relationships, even more than anything else I've talked about. Uh, That seems to be the most critical things for keeping humans happy. Wow, yeah, I mean, that's a beautiful way to sum it up. I really appreciate it. I know that a lot of this information was just very top level because we, you know, don't have days and days absolutely. of time. I could go into yeah. it for hours, as you could tell. Yeah, um, well, yeah absolutely. I, I look forward to, um, to making it along to one of your talks in New Zealand and I'm sure a lot of people Great. listening would like to do that too. We will put all the links to all of your shows, um, all of your information, websites and things in our show notes so people can just click on them. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate your time. Pleasure. Thanks for the chat. Oh, one last question before you go. What did you think of the podcast? Did you like it? Because if you did, then please rate it and review it and share it and tell people about it. Tell your mum, tell your dad, tell some random guy down the road. It really does make a big difference and it helps us to keep creating this podcast and sharing this awesome information with you for free. This show is brought to you by Raw Collective, the podcast company behind the creation of this show. You will find all updates on the Raw Collective Instagram as well as on the website rawcollective.co. Now get out of here. Go have a good day. Get out of here. Bye.